Did you know that Chatbot was a runner-up for the word of the year in 2016? In the end, the folks over at Oxford Dictionaries ultimately bestowed the honor on another word, post-truth. And I'll let you decide for yourself what that means for you. However, for chatbots, the message is clear. Chatbots became so prolific last year that they're not only part of how many companies are doing business, but they're part of our vernacular. Today, we'll be hearing about chatbots from Joe Rideout, one of the product managers at Kick, and why he thinks they should be part of your overall product planning. And we agree. I'm John Pryor, and welcome to the Impact Podcast. Last time on the Impact Podcast, we brought you a presentation from Inmar Javoni, who spoke at our annual portfolio conference about machine learning. Today, we want to share yet another presentation from the conference. Joe Rideout, a product manager at Kick, delivered a great session on chatbots. He takes us through many of the trends, but a key takeaway is that the competitive battle shouldn't be ceded to the largest players in the industry. As a matter of fact, Joe's sharing of the M&A activities in this space is fascinating. But perhaps the most important insight here is why would one deploy a bot rather than just make another app? Well, it's all here in today's Impact Podcast. Here's Joe starting his presentation. Uh, so hello, everyone. My name is uh, Joe Rideout, and I'm a product manager at Kick. Kick is one of the biggest messaging apps in the world. And about six months ago, we launched our first platform, which allows third parties to develop uh, services on top of our application in the form of bots. We weren't the only ones that did this. Um, a lot of the big platforms have done the same thing, including Facebook Messenger, Slack. And so what I'd like to talk about today is all the things that happened in the world that led up to, being, to messaging being as important as it is today, and what we see as being the tremendous opportunity to build on top of these new platforms. Uh, just a few stats on Kik. Um, we are a proud Canadian company based in Waterloo, Ontario. We have 300 million registered users, and since the launch of our platform, we've seen 20,000 bots created by developers and over 2 billion messages exchanged between users and bots. Um, just a bit of my background uh, for what it's worth. So I started my career as a software engineer working at Google down in Mountain View, and I worked on mobile products for pretty much my whole career. Um, started doing some early stuff in mobile search, uh, then moved over to work on Gmail, and then at some point sort of went into a few of Google's forays into the social networking space. From there, I moved on to working on Google+, including something called Google Plus Messenger, which is kind of a precursor to what is now Hangouts. After I left Google, I started my own uh, mobile messaging company called Relay, which was focused on expressive visual messaging. Relay got acquired by Kik in 2014, and now I'm at Kik, and I'm leading the efforts around it's what we call expressive messaging, which is communicating with animated GIFs, emojis, stickers, and basically everything that's not text. 2011, I was working at Google in the Waterloo office, which is an engineering outpost. At the time, it was about 30 people, so much smaller than it is today. It's about 300 people today. And our office was tasked with building um, the mobile apps for Google+, so the Android app, the iOS app. And Google Plus at the time was a very secretive, important internal project, which was meant to be Google's answer to Facebook. You know, it was believed that we had to build our own social network. Mobile was actually a bit of an afterthought to the Google Plus project, and that's how us up in Tiny Waterloo um, got a chance to work on that project. And as a PM working on Google Plus Mobile, 
you know, it was sort of like getting, it, it was a very desktop web-centric product, and so we'd get these product specs and designs, you know, coming from Mountain View, and we'd have to sort of translate them into, you know, which of the mobile UI look like. Uh, there wasn't a lot of opportunities for us to really be thinking about what would a mobile-first social network look like. At the same time, beginning of 2011, there was some really interesting stuff going on at the intersection of social and mobile out in the industry. This is when location-based apps were really starting to get a lot of attention, things like Foursquare and Gowalla. And then the early mobile group messaging apps were really starting to take off, um, getting a ton of traction, picking up in the press. So this is when Kick went from a million to two million users in under a week. You know, the press was filled with stories about Beluga, GroupMe, WhatsApp, and you know, pretty quickly, some of the big tech giants started picking up on this. Beluga was quickly acquired by Facebook, which formed the foundation of Facebook Messenger. GroupMe was picked up by Skype for 85 million, and so on and so forth. And I think Google Plus, Google kind of missed an opportunity there to get in early on. And right around that time was the first time that I got introduced to Ted Livingston, who's the founder of Kick. Um, I met him at this restaurant in Uptown Waterloo, and you know, I remember that meeting very clearly because he was a pretty young guy, you know, brand new founder, but very confident and had a very clear vision. And there's two things that he said to me that have stuck with me. The first one is he believed very truly that the group messaging apps, which were you know, just this new hot thing just coming onto the market, were the only true credible threat to the empire that Facebook was starting to build. That messaging was the one thing that eventually people would do more than news feeds and social networking. Seems very obvious now, but at the time it wasn't at all. Second thing he said is he believed that messaging would someday become a new platform and a way to interact with things in the world around you. And I remember he pointed at this TV over the bar and he said, imagine if I could just take my phone out without installing anything, just connect to that TV by sending it a message and you know, change the channel, like cue up a piece of music, play a trivia game. And at the time, this all seemed like a little bit crazy, and I went back to happily working on Google+, and then watched over the next five years as you know, the whole industry changed for A, the first prediction to entirely come true, and B, for the stage to be set for the second prediction to come true. So what's happened since 2011? If you look at this slide, uh, this shows where adults in the US are focusing their attention on media since 2011. So at the top is television, um, orange line is desktop laptop, and that yellow line is mobile. So it's easy for me to say, you know, Google didn't see the future, at least Google Plus, back in 2011, but it was a very different time back then. Um, you know, most of the digital media that was being consumed was on desktop and laptop, and mobile was just, you know, slightly above print. And in a short five years, that's completely transformed. Uh, mobile has completely crushed desktop, laptop, and is starting to catch up with television. Mobile messaging has really been at the forefront of this shift. So last year, for the first time, uh, we realized that more people were interacting with messaging apps than with social networks. Now, I like to think this is because talking is more fun than stalking. But really, I think it's because um, the messaging paradigm, the messaging applications are something that are very powerful um, and native on mobile. So let me talk about why that is. There's three kind of attributes to mobile messaging apps that, that make them powerful. And first is the immediacy. So when I send a message to someone through a mobile messaging app, there's an expectation that I can send that message at any time and they're gonna get it. They may not get it right away, but it's gonna go to their pocket 
and they'll have the opportunity to see it at some point when they're ready. You know, if you contrast this to the old days of desktop chat, where there was a notion of online, offline, away, and you had to type things like AFK, BRB, um, now you know that message is gonna get delivered. Um, and there's also this really smooth transition between a asynchronous communication and a synchronous communication. So might I, I might have a conversation with you that spans over minutes or hours, and then at the same time, if, if we're there at the same time, it could you know, quickly transition to in a very fast sort of desktop chat-like synchronous experience. Second, uh, the space inside mobile messaging apps are very personal. If you look at your conversation list in your mobile messaging app, you're probably gonna see the relationships that are most important to you. So for me, it's my wife, my friends, my family, and that's because the conversations in mobile messaging apps are fundamentally organized around people. You contrast that to, say, an email inbox, which is organized around topics, which you know, are short-lived and eventually fade away. Um, even some of the early SMS UIs were inbox-based, whereas when you make it people-based, you tend to build up this long history with someone. So for example, my chat history with my wife, that's actually this long digital history, um, this sort of digital representation of our relationship. Uh, and then the fact that the conversation list reorganizes such that the newest messages bumps conversations to the, to the top means that the people that I talk to the most are always there. And that makes for a very personal and trusted environment. So if these are the things that lead messaging to be a powerful platform and led to the sort of astronomical growth that we've seen. Why is it all of a sudden that in 2016, there's all this incredible hype around messaging apps, the platforms that the messaging apps have launched, um, and this idea of bots? Um, you know, bot is probably one of the most buzzy words right now. I think Inc. Magazine said uh, 2016 is the year of the bot. Why is that? And I think there's a simple reason. You know, we know mobile messaging is this thing that everybody does. They do it an incredible amount, and it's this very simple and frequent way to communicate with the people you care about, why can that simplicity not also be used um, to interact with things that you might care about? So for example, I have a relationship with my bank, why can I not send a message to my bank to pay a bill? Or if I walk into a restaurant and sit down at a table, why can I not message the waiter or message that restaurant to bring a beer to my table? These are the questions that a lot of people are wondering about. And then there's another thing, which is that a lot of these questions have actually already been answered, uh, but they've been answered in China. So China, you know, the internet developed there very differently. They pretty much entirely skipped the desktop web era. Most people that have come online in China in the last five years have gone straight to mobile. And so a very sophisticated ecosystem around chat, uh, specifically centered inside an app called WeChat, has developed. And what this gives us is basically a chance to sort of glimpse into the future of what could be possible if you know, a similar ecosystem could be developed in North America. And this is why you know, a lot of people in the press, tech press talk about you know, who's gonna be the WeChat of the West. And it's another reason why the parent company of WeChat, Tencent, uh, invested in Kik. Um, they also recently invested in Hike Messenger, which is the biggest messenger in India. Um, you know, could, they could potentially be the WeChat of India. Um, so you may have heard some of these things before. Maybe you've been lucky enough to visit China and experience some, experience some of this stuff firsthand. But WeChat is kind of the ultimate app of apps. It's the app, the only app that you need to get through your day, and you can do everything in it from booking taxis, transferring money, making doctor's appointments. You know, if you go to a hotel and there's no towels in your room, you just connect to the hotel in WeChat, you ask for more towels, 
And anything you can imagine that you could do in an app in North America, you can do in WeChat in China. There's also something in China that I find really exciting, which is this notion of offline to online. So QR codes are very ubiquitous in China, and they act as these physical discovery points that can be quickly scanned by your mobile device and then connect you to a bot which acts as sort of a user interface to interact with that thing or place. I had the opportunity to experience this firsthand last week. I was on a business trip in New York, and I went out for lunch with some kit colleagues to this restaurant in Chinatown called 99 Favor Taste, which is an exceptional all-you-can-eat hot pot and Korean barbecue spot. I highly recommend it. That's my delicious mushrooms and steak cooking on the grill on our table on the far left. And something that we noticed when we sat down was there were these little uh, WeChat QR codes all over, the, all over the place. They had some on the booth, they had some on the menu, and when our bill came, that's my bill, there's a QR code on the bill. So I had to try this out. I had WeChat on my phone, took it out, scanned it, instantly taken to this uh, payment UI where you can select the tip, uh, you can split the bill uh, among other WeChat users, and so forth. Fortunately, I don't have a WePay, uh, WeChat Pay account, so I wasn't able to complete the transaction, but it was still cool. And this kind of stuff happens all the time in China. Uh, to a much greater extent, you can scan QR codes on vending machines to connect to a UI for the vending machine where you can pick something, put in your payment, candy bar comes out. Uh, you can scan a QR code on a printer, connect to a bot, send a photo of that printer, your photo comes out from the printer. Okay, let's go back to North America. I think in the previous talk, we touched on some of the things that are kind of leading up to, to, to North America being ready for an ecosystem like this. Um, the first thing is just the ubiquity of messaging apps. Um, this is true in North America and around the world. 1.4 billion people used a chat app in 2015. People are spending an incredible amount of time in chat and messaging apps. And second, you know, we're seeing a sort of saturation in the app market. So there's this stat, two-thirds of smartphone users downloaded zero apps in the last month. So we have people that are using mobile more than ever, but they're using fewer and fewer apps. So they're spending more and more time in the apps that they already have, the number one being messaging apps. And so this is why in Mary Meeker's Internet Trends Report for 2016, she talked about messaging apps increasingly becoming the second home screen. This is where the buzz comes from. Uh, in the last six months, we've seen pretty much every major mobile messaging platform launch a mobile messaging app, launch a platform, Kick, Facebook Messenger, Skype, Telegram, Slack. And I guess to, to talk a little bit specifically about what Kick's platform is, it's an open platform. Any developer can build a bot that users can chat and interact with. And then we also have some, I guess, special features that only bots are able to access. So things like menus, suggested responses, viral invites. I think this, this kind of, I guess, raises the question of, what exactly is a bot? So we think of a bot as a very lightweight piece of software that runs inside this new runtime, this new container, which are messaging apps. And then the messaging app, you know, it acts both as the runtime and as you know, the distribution platform. So in Kick, for example, we have a bot shop. That's our version of the app shop where users can go and discover bots. And so currently we have a little over 100 brands in the bot shop, you know, ranging from fashion-related things like H&M and Sephora, uh, media like Vine and Funny or Die, games, and so forth. Uh, so when you think of that definition of a bot, uh, a few questions come up, which are perhaps a little controversial. The first one is, if a bot is entirely menu-driven, is it really a bot, or does there have to be some notion of natural language processing? And to me, I think that both menu-based input and natural language-based input are 
both incredibly exciting. They both have very important use cases. And it really depends on what you're trying to do. Something that's very common in any new user interface is entering structured data or forms. So if you imagine doing something as simple as ordering a pizza, ordering a pizza in the best way might depend on the kind of interface you're using. So if I'm ordering a pizza through Amazon Echo, natural language might be great. I can say, uh, you know, please send me two large pepperoni pizzas, extra sauce, anchovies, and breadsticks on the side. If I have to go and type all that uh, in natural language into a chat application, it's an absolute disaster. And that's where menus are really the best form of input. You know, I, something I focus on a lot at Kick is expressive input, things like GIFs, stickers, emoji. You know, these are not exactly natural language, but often they are you know, the best input, both in a human conversation, and we have lots of bots on our platform that grok emoji as well. There's a related question, which is, does a bot have to have AI to be a bot? You know, there's, I think, a class of bot out there, which, uh, you know, things like Allo, which are these smart assistants, which can you know, parse any kind of question or input and either come up with the answer or route you to the right place. And those are potentially very interesting. Um, but I think there's also, you know, we see a lot of people working on you know, much simpler bots, which are focused around basically quickly enabling a very lightweight experience. So for example, if I go to McDonald's and I want to use a bot to order a Big Mac and skip the line, I don't care to have a natural language conversation with McDonald's. It doesn't need that hyperintelligence. I just want to skip the line, get my burger, and get out of there. You may have seen this phrase in the press, uh, bots are the new apps. You also may have seen a lot of uh, press lately critiquing bots. Um, I saw an article in Digiday this morning, and the headline was, bots are the new apps, only they suck. And you know, when you think, oh, a bot, you know, maybe it doesn't have to have AI, doesn't have to have natural language processing, it could just be a series of menus. How could that ever be better than an app? If it can't do all the things that my app can do, why would I ever use it? And we actually think that there is a very simple and compelling reason for that, which is that Bots reduce the risk to trying something out. Again, going back, people aren't installing new apps anymore. The apps that they have installed are the apps that they use on a regular basis because there's a large upfront cost to installing an app. I have to go in the app store and find it. I have to download it, install it. I have to accept permissions, probably create an account. Maybe I put in a credit card. I have a whole new UI to learn. Um, I'm going to do that for apps that I use a lot, but I'm not going to use it for one-off one apps. There is a metaphor that our president of services, Josh Jacobs, likes to use a lot. He says that bots are to apps as dating is to marriage. Installing an app, that's a commitment. Um, putting a bot in your messenger, you know, that's not really a commitment. That's a chance to get to know each other, build a relationship, and maybe you know, move to something more serious in the future. And from a user acquisition point of view, building a bot could be an opportunity to sort of open yourself up to a more casual kind of user who's, you know, they're not actively seeking you out with a ring in their hand, but they're interested in what you're doing. You know, they want to build a relationship and find out more. There's a use case that I like a lot. You might have heard this before if you read Ted Livingston's uh, blog post, which is, I'm going to a Jays game, not a season ticket holder. Maybe I get out to one game a year. I show up there and I see the sign that says, get a beer delivered to your seat, just install our app. Now, if I have to go to the App Store, find the app, find the right keywords to find it, download it, all the stuff that I talked about, if I know I'm probably not going to go back for a year, I'm not going to do that. But if I see a message that says, 
just send a message to this bot on the messenger that you already have, seat B13, send me a beer, that's something that I'll probably do. And when that beer comes to my seat, that's an awesome experience. I'm, I'm really gonna love that. I just wanna play a quick video. This is, I think, an example of where a bot works great over an app. Over an app. This is something that we did with the BeautyCon Beauty Festival in New York a couple of weeks ago. So something that happens, uh, it's a big trade show for beauty products, and something that happens there is out on the trade show floor, you can get in line to have your makeup done uh, by any of the vendors that are there. So you know, brands like L'Oreal, Sephora, and people will wait for half an hour or more you know, to get awesome hair and makeup done. So this year we collaborated with them and we built a bot which allowed you to walk up to, you know, walk up to one of the tables, uh, scan a kit code, which are our QR codes, instantly be connected to the BeautyCon bot, and reserve yourself a virtual space in line. So you'd be told, you know, through the messaging UI, roughly how long it was gonna be before it was your turn. You'd go out and wander the trade show floor, and then you'd get a notification when it was your turn to get your makeup done. Um, so this bot was very successful. There was about 4,000 attendees at the conference. Over 1,000 people scanned the bot. And some of the vendors actually stopped doing the physical lines entirely, and were only doing people that would, uh, that would sign up with the bot. Just one more bot on Kick that I wanted to talk about. Um, so this is something that we did with Paramount around the launch of the new Ninja Turtles movie. Collaborated with a company in Toronto called Massively. Actually built four bots, one for each of the Ninja Turtles. And you'd start by being introduced to Mikey, get to know his personality. There's a bit of a story to it, and over time he'd introduce you to the other Ninja Turtles. And I think you know, what I like about you know, this execution is I think it's a mistake to just try to take media that you've already produced for the web or for your mobile app and just try to shoehorn it into a bot. Um, if you're in a messaging app, it's important to think about what's special and creative, you know, what's special about that platform and what can you take advantage of. And this was something where you, know, you really were chatting with these personas, with these characters. It was very native to mobile. And we saw great engagement, so an average of seven minutes chatting with each of the bots um, and 60 messages exchanged on average to build a lot of sort of hype and engagement for the movie release. So I'm gonna to start to wrap up with a question. How many people here have used a bot on one of the big mobile messaging platforms? Okay, hands still up. How many people thought it was awesome and were totally blown away by it? All right, that's fantastic. <laughs> I need to find out which bots those are. I get asked this a lot, which is, you know, what are the killer apps? We keep hearing about apps and the new bots. We haven't seen them yet. You know, what's the Pokemon Go? Of bots. I actually don't think it's there yet. I think that um, we're still sort of on the upward trend of the hype cycle. These platforms have only been out, you know, the big messaging platforms have only been opened up for less than six months. Developers, designers are just trying to figure them out, kick the tires. And I think, you know, the best thing I can compare this to is sort of web in the 90s. I don't know how many people here are old enough to remember hit counters and blink tags. Awesome. Um, not a lot of the people that I work with would, uh, would, would remember that. I think if you were around then, um, what you might find hard to believe is that the web that we know today developed out of this. But there was something else that was going on back in the 90s as well, which is that when we all used a browser for the first time, it was really this brand new blank canvas. And so it was the creative people from around the world, designers, developers, publishers, who filled in that canvas and made the web what it is today. And we think that we're on the wave of a new opportunity like this. We think that bots are the new websites, and it's gonna be the people in this room and others who collectively are gonna uh, define what we think is this very exciting future. Thank you. 
Well, I know what I care about. For me, it's not about ordering a pizza. No, conversational business, the trend that's driving everything you just heard about from Joe is more than the underlying AI or NLP. It's really about your users, the interfaces they want and expect, and the content you deliver. Thanks for joining us for the Impact Podcast. I'm John Pryor. Thank you.